In 2021, through Azika Records, the innovative Houston, Texas-based Apollo Chamber Players released their fifth studio album, With Malice Toward None. Taking its title from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, the recording deals with politics, identity, and what it means to be a citizen of a nation balanced between an idealized past and a just future. Featured on the recording is a remarkable work by composer-performer Eve Beglarian, titled We Will Sing One Song, characterized by the Los Angeles Times as a humane, idealistic rebel and a musical sensualist. Eve Beglarian's chamber, choral, and orchestral music has been commissioned and performed by Orchestra of St. Luke's, the Los Angeles Master Chorale, the American Composers Orchestra, the Bang on a Can All-Stars, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the Apollo Chamber Players, and countless other notable groups and individual performers. Eve Beglarian is here with us, along with Apollo Chamber Players violinist and founder Matthew Dietrich. Hi, Eve and Matthew. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Good to be here, Matt. Hi there, Max. Great to be here. Known as the River Project, you began writing We Will Sing One Song while reading the human comedy by Armenian-American writer William Saroyan. I wanted to start back in 2009 or even before and discuss your obsession with the Mississippi River and its impact on the development of American culture. Yes, thanks for asking about the River Project. I sort of conceived of that project as a delayed reaction to Hurricane Katrina, which woke me up in a very deep way to the ongoing racial inequities in this country in a way that I really hadn't been as attentive to as I should have been. And so the combination of that of learning about the 1927 flood of the Mississippi that added extra impetus to the Great Migration out of the South, the election of Obama, which made me believe that we had turned a corner in this country, and the economic crash all sort of went together to give me the idea of doing a one-person WPA project. Most of your listeners know that in the 30s, as part of the Depression, part of fighting the Depression, President Roosevelt instituted a program called the Works Progress Administration, which sent artists, put them to work, going out into the country and learning about the country and documenting the country. And so I sort of decided I would do this one-person WPA project, and that was the impetus of the River Project. You spent a year traveling the entire length of the Mississippi, starting from its source in Minnesota. I guess this is not an entirely new idea, as the journey down the Mississippi has been made and written about by many people, the most famous of which is probably Mark Twain, about 120 years ago. Mark Twain, he was a real thing. Like, he became a riverboat pilot, or an assistant pilot, and certainly knew the river in terms of navigation in a way that I can't even pretend to. I have friends who are boat pilots and they know things that I can't even pretend to know the first thing about. I think my specific orientation was to follow my own passions and interests which tend to be about the way the past gets laid on the present 
the way culture and nature are intertwined. So those sorts of things caught my attention and became sort of inspirations for pieces that I wrote. And so I was not interested in any way in doing extreme sports. You know, it wasn't about how quickly or how intensely can I paddle down the Mississippi River. Not at all. And it was much more sort of reflective and trying to find the strands of history that are still present even though submerged. There's one piece called Early in the Morning that uses the sound of these insects and stuff that woke me up actually at 3 a.m. in Iowa somewhere. And that becomes the percussion track for this piece. I love that your whole Mississippi River project, Eve, it was one of the reasons why I reached out to you for our project you know, a decade later. I thought it was fascinating that you mentioned Hurricane Katrina as kind of a cultural seminal moment now that we've gone through the killing of George Floyd. And I think finally those things have come full circle in a way. So in August 2009, you headed down the river and made this sonic journal. Yes, and so several of the pieces use location recordings as the source for the music. And then there are things that I learned about by making the journey. There's a ghost town in Mississippi called Rodney, Mississippi. That's the place where Eudora Welty made a story She doesn't call it Rodney, but it's perfectly clear that it's Rodney that she's referring to. That ended up getting built into a big chamber piece called Waiting for Billy Floyd. That is, in a sense, a programmatic response to this story of Eudora Welty's that's set in Rodney, Mississippi. Were you in part trying to create a shared conversation and experience of making music? Yes, although I didn't actively look for collaborators on the journey down the river. That would have been a very interesting and compelling thing to do. But in a certain sense, what I needed at that moment in my life was to take a step back from my role as composer as being the way I engaged with the world and engage with people as a person. And the cool thing about paddling and biking down the Mississippi River as a 51-year-old woman is that it's really easy to make friends. Lots of people want to talk to you and are very open. And so it was this sort of marvelous experience of not being an artist first, but being a person first that I then was able to reflect on afterwards to make new music. And as you say, I think what you did then was translate your human connected experiences into your music. And I think that really is one of the reasons why you're able to so meaningfully connect with human beings. So the trip starts in Minnesota and then you make your way all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and ends in New Orleans. What you're capturing is probably for Much of the piece is very peaceful. The locations you came upon, you must have compiled quite an extensive database of sounds on the trip. Yes, although interesting, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, right? The Mississippi River is actually an industrial spine of the country. Thou art my help! 
and it is surprisingly full of industry. And when you think about the amount of shipping that goes on on the Mississippi River, it's huge. And in fact, below Memphis, I really switched to biking way more than paddling, simply because paddling on the Mississippi River below Memphis is sort of like biking on the interstate. You can do it, but it doesn't feel safe. It's hardly an experience of nature. My My rock and my fortress. Most of the time that I was doing this journey, other people joined me for various legs. My hope. And so that meant that on any given day, one person was in the car, one person was paddling, and if there was another person, they were on a bicycle. That meant that I could trade out of paddling because if I'd paddled every single day, I wouldn't have met people, I wouldn't have experienced the country via the river. That's how it unfolded, and it meant that I was also in towns and meeting people and also setting up camp, finding the campgrounds, and living outdoors. All of those things contributed to this experience. Just to get back to the inspiration for the piece, which is the Soroyan novel, the human comedy. My soul. And this moment in that novel where a young boy waves at a man on a passing train who's singing Stephen Foster's My Old Kentucky Home, the first five words of that song is the title of this piece. I'm using the version or the part of my old Kentucky home that's, you know, weep no more, my lady, oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, for the old Kentucky home far away. So it is a nostalgic, loving remembrance of Kentucky, a place where the waving man probably has had mm, difficult times, right? He is a black man heading home to Kentucky. And so there is a sense, and I've met many people in Mississippi, black people in Mississippi who left Mississippi, who had whole lives outside of Mississippi and end up coming home in the later part of their lives because there is something about the soil of Mississippi that is home and that never disappears. And I have one friend whose uncle was lynched in the field near where his house now stands. And he's fully aware. It's not like he's in denial. He knows perfectly well that that is part of the history of the place that he's come home to. And it's that complexity that I was trying to bring to life because that complexity exists certainly for many black people in America who go back to the South, who repatriate to the places of violence. But that's true, of course, for an Armenian as well, to feel that way about the sites that terrible, terrible violence was done. And so you feel both a love for it and a fear or a horror of that same place. And to be able to look at that complexity square, honestly, becomes a new kind of love for one's country that is not the propaganda that William Soroyan used to write the human comedy. It's actually far more complex. And I think that William Soroyan knew that he was putting all those layers in 
when he wrote this scene for Ulysses, the four-year-old boy, waving to the black man on the train singing My Old Kentucky Home. And actually, this comes forward into the present. I'm currently working on a project called the Vicksburg Project, which is specifically about women in Vicksburg, Mississippi, during the Civil War, where there was a very important siege. Those of you who are Civil War buffs know all about it. And then the Jim Crow era in Vicksburg, and then the 1960s, the Civil Rights era in Vicksburg, and then what I thought was going to be the present day, because originally, of course, I conceived of this project in 2009 and thought that it would see the light of day sort of before 2022. And we were actually workshopping it in 2019. And that project went quite heavily on hold during the pandemic. And we're going to be workshopping it at Mabu Mines this spring. So this Vicksburg project where I got obsessed because I think of myself, yes, always as responding to something that's out there already that I'm just paying attention to. And yet it's very easy to see it the other way that like I decided to make a piece about Vicksburg, right? And so where does the initiation happen and where does the response happen? And I think the Vicksburg project is gradually taking shape and adding collaborators as we've gone. But in a way, it was a response to the guy at the National Park who told me the story of a person who had served in the Union Army and only towards the end of their life was it determined that it was a woman who had been dressed as a man, who had been passing as a man his whole life as a soldier and had acquitted himself beautifully in the siege of Vicksburg. Albert Cashier is his name. And so that and the story of the women of Vicksburg who left their houses and brought everything into caves outside of Vicksburg, that was the start of it. So that's a response. But of course, to decide to keep going and keep visiting Vicksburg and going back and finding people who join this obsession, that's been a 12-year project. Eve, I feel like this is exactly how We Will Sing One Song was birthed as well. Apollo's obsession is the music of different cultures of the world, globally inspired music, folk music, and the initial idea to compose a work inspired by Armenian traditional music was ours, I believe. I knew you were of Armenian ancestry, and I thought our interests would align in that respect, and also given the unique project you've taken on, particularly like your um, Mississippi excursion. Um, but culturally, I didn't see many other works or compositions that you wrote specifically relating to your heritage. Hmm. Yeah, there are a few. There's I Will Not Be Sad in This World, which is for flute and pre-recorded sound. That's at this point, many, many, many flutists around have played this piece and recorded this piece. And then there's also a collaboration I did with the cellist Maya Beiser, which was dealing with the poetry of Henri Michaud, ended up being a collaboration with the visual artist Shirin Neshat. And all of the music is based on Armenian source material. If you know Armenian music, you recognize all these strands are worked into the piece. But I think the connection I would make of this piece, you commissioned a piece responding to Armenian music and left that completely open for me. And you wanted there to be a Duduk player that you were sure of. And that was new for you, right? That's right. I have not written for Duduk prior to this piece. So that was really exciting. And then you said something about percussion. And I proposed uh, to work with Pejman, who I had worked with on a project that was a commission from the LA Master Chorale having to do with Persian traditional music. 
which is sort of tangentially related to my background because my father, though he's Armenian, grew up in Tehran, lived in Tehran as a boy and came to this country when he was 19. And for me, because I went and read William Soroyan and got inspired to make this piece in response to the William Soroyan, which for me is quintessentially American. William Soroyan is writing during the middle of the Second World War. He's writing, in a way, a piece of propaganda, anti-fascist propaganda of the most lovely. It's the dream that we have of the fundamental innocence and goodness of American culture. It is a dream. It is a fantasy. It is not real. But it is a beautiful dream that William Soroyan, in the depths of the Second World War, is doing everything he can to promote. And that was essential to me in 2019, which is a hard time for us to remember in 2022. We were in the middle of the Trump administration. We didn't know yet about COVID. We didn't know the transformation of the country or of the world that has happened in the last two years when I was beginning to write this piece. And instead, what I was thinking about was the sense of this dream of American optimism as being incredibly seductive and touching and how we all want it, even in the face of knowing it's not true. Or if we don't know that it's possible. Right think that's the American experience is that we have these past sins which in some respect have been atoned for but in a lot of respects haven't and I think that the idealism of America that's what makes us strong in the world and what you do as a composer and what artists do and I hope what Apollo Chamber Players does as well is bring these ideals through art to the people in a way that's non-threatening and a way that can reach people meaningfully in our sense that's why I think culture is so important and for people to understand everyone's cultures. The piece which is almost 18 minutes long and begins with this melodic exploration on these five words develops into this untraditional dance and that interesting percussion part which finally resolves into a real Armenian version of the song. In a sense it starts out with an abstraction of the melody if you haven't read the program note, you're not going to be immediately thinking of my old Kentucky home. You're going to be hearing this sort of abstract knitting together of some motivic ideas that don't have any particular non-musical reference. I think that's true. And that grows and grows into this dance that purposely was not meant to be an Armenian dance. I wanted to push the Duduk player to do something that wasn't squarely in the tradition but that would require a stretch from him as the Armenianness requires a stretch from the American string players. So that was sort of very much part of my urge with that strange dance that we end up in the climax. That climax breaks off, we go into the percussion solo where I really trusted Pejman to build to a place where we would have earned the actual tune, which is very tricky because if you do this piece wrong, you haven't earned, we will sing one song and it will come off either as 
sentimental or as weirdly appropriative in some way that is very uncomfortable. So to me, it is a risky piece to take the Stephen Foster and treat it as a serious expression of emotion about loving your place, your home place, and then transform that into an Armenian expression of loving your home place. It's beautifully stated, Eve, and I think that commissioners and use the composer showed some love and trust in Pejman and Arson creating their version of how this should go. So we did give them a little bit of a template. Arson did a lot of improvising himself as well as Pejman and really the percussion instruments that Pejman uses are just so unique and so wonderfully magical sounding. When you recorded, it was early on in COVID 2020. By now, everybody is pretty well versed in recording in their own locations, and we've had real-time recordings for quite some time now, but the way you did it was overdone. I think it was deeply challenging to do during the pandemic, when we couldn't all be in a room together. For me, there were other pieces that I wrote during this period that people decided to go ahead and make the recording and push forward even in the midst of the pandemic. And most of them, it didn't seem like a huge risk to do that. It seemed reasonable to go ahead and, and do that. And in fact, uh, there are some pieces that maybe even benefited from that isolation, if you will, the multiple overdubbed approach to music making. This one, it was really a stretch. In fact, I think it's gonna be really interesting when we finally get the chance to do this with everybody in the same room together, because I think it may be that we find new things in the piece as we can all be in the room together and authentically sing one song. I can't wait for that experience as well. You know, I keep thinking that you went on this physical journey on the Mississippi to find the connections. In this sense, this has been kind of a digital work in progress. You know, I felt your hesitation and I apologize for pushing this, but I felt really strongly that this was something important to get out now. I'm so glad that you trusted us it was supremely challenging to do this digitally. We had to figure out who was recording first, you know, the strings, the percussion, and Duddick, and I think we actually did it in that order, right? We did the strings here in Houston, then we sent that to Arson in Armenia. He recorded his portion in his studio, and then we kind of traded back a couple of times, and then the final edition was Pejman's percussion part leading into his improvisation. Arsen recorded himself doing the ending section solo and the strings were added as accompaniment so that, and this is important to me, Arsen took the lead on making that closing five minutes of the piece and the string players supported his choices. I'm glad we've gotten a chance to discuss Arson and Pejman. Just wanted to talk about Joan's role as violist. 
Sure, our core violist, Whitney Bullock, was on maternity leave. You know, that in addition to kind of the whole COVID challenges, we weren't exactly sure what to do, but we reached out to the acting principal violist of the Houston Symphony, Joan Derhuvsepian. She has Armenian heritage. She was very happy to record with us. We just had a really wonderful time. Eve, can you talk about how your digital track worked with the live players? Yeah, it was conceived of originally for live performance. And so basically, I wanted to create a cloud of string drone. Very often, you have two to Duke players. One person is doing the drone, and then the other person is doing the melody. And the drone is absolutely essential to the sound of the music. You can't conceive of the piece being done as just a single melody. It's all in relation to that drone. And so my idea was to make a sort of artificial string bed that the real strings would grow out of, just as the Duduk melody grows out of a Duduk drone. And it sort of falls away gradually as the piece continues. And if we've done it right, it sort of falls away subliminally. And so you don't miss the bed falling away. And once you get into the dance, the bed isn't there anymore. But at the beginning of the piece, I was really looking for this idea that there's this string bed that the real strings can grow out of. How cool is it that you brought this century, actually millennia, I think that the Duduk dates from 1000 BC, that instrument and imitated that in our common vernacular in the digital realm. That's so cool. Matthew, this was the 19th commission of Apollo's 20 by 2020 initiative, and I believe there's an Armenian connection in funding this piece. Is that right? There was, and this is a lot of the project commissions evolve from people in our global community here in Houston wanting to do something to you know, either reflect their heritage or somebody that's passed away. And in this case, it was an underwriter named Pamela Auburn. Her father had passed away a few years prior. He was born in Armenia. He has a success story. He came to the United States with no money, You know, worked up to be a successful businessman and left her the means to create this new art through Apollo Chamber Players, which is uh, just really humbling and wonderful to be able to honor someone's legacy in that fashion. Thinking about how this piece and project has parallels to what's going on in the world as we record this conversation, on particularly the violence and the unprovoked attack on Ukraine, I imagine that both the Ukrainian and Russian people are having a difficult time reconciling why they are in conflict with their shared history and culture. And I think this is the same for Armenians and Turks and Azerbaijanis. You know, even closer to home, I was thinking how that connects to the widening rift between Americans of different races and political parties. And I just feel that we have more in common than we realize and that we are a part of the same song. Eve Beglarian, Matthew Dietrich, great conversation. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.